According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can turn to Matthew 15 as we get started. Matthew 15 in the parallel text is Mark chapter 7. We'll just take the Matthew account for starters. We've been dealing with a Syrophoenician woman, and we're ready today to move on to the next episode. It's a pretty short one, actually. Uh, before we do, we've got some loose ends to tie together. I asked you a question at the end of class last week, and you were supposed to be thinking about something. And uh, so if you've been thinking about it, then you're ready. If you've not given it another thought, then you're not ready. That's okay. We'll uh, start with some prayer, and then we'll see if you're thinking or not. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege that it is to assemble. And we realize, Father, as we look at different buildings and different facilities, including the one we're sitting in, Father, these are just circumstances and details. They're just buildings. and They're nice to, nice to have where we're very thankful for the grace provision. You've allowed us a facility in which to assemble and worship and study. And, Father, uh, we recognize that, uh, that this is a grace provision. We look to you to provide if, uh, if we need to be elsewhere. If, if, uh, if you are enlarging our capacity, then we, uh, we want to have wisdom in the choices set before us. And uh, we don't want to get lost and, and uh, confused or caught up in the details of the money. And, the, and uh, we certainly don't want to get down the road where we think we're building some, some big fancy temple. Father, uh, we just simply want a facility where believers can be fed, where believers can be trained. And you, uh, you know the burden on our heart because you put the burden on our heart, and we thank you for that. Father, we also thank you for this holiday. It's a national holiday. Uh, men are off work, and because of that, they're able to come in and join us today. We, uh, we rejoice in that opportunity as well. Father, we uh, understand that our freedom is also a grace gift, and that there are those that are determined to end that freedom uh, and that includes external enemies that want to end our freedom through terrorism and then internal enemies that want to end our freedom through political means. Father, uh, it's all in your hands, and we thank you for it. At least on this day, the Word of God can be taught, and we're not uh, afraid of uh, someone coming in and arresting us for teaching the truth as the truth, and that uh, that is our blessing and our joy. So, Father, uh, set aside distractions. Give us concentration. Uh, we thank you so much for this day and all the blessings you pour upon us. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, I got no clue how the message is going to go this morning. I kind of like coming back from Kiev. You land uh, and not sure what time zone you're in and you get up and you teach. And I don't even know what happened on that day. But uh, the last couple of nights have been pretty similar to that with people coming in at 2 in the morning and and so forth, two nights in a row. But that's uh, that's what it is. All right, the Syrophoenician woman. And we're introduced to her in this chapter. And uh, as we look at it, just kind of as you, if you're in Matthew like I am, you just kind of look across the pages. And in chapter 14, you see John the Baptist beheaded. You see the 5,000 fed. You see the walking on water. And, uh, and then you get into chapter 15 with the tradition and commandments. Uh, also the heart of man explanation that comes in verses 15 through 20. Then the Syrophoenician woman in verses 21 through 28. That's where we are at the moment. We're headed before the end of the chapter. You'll notice in uh, verses 32 and following the feeding of the 4,000. Don't confuse the feeding of the 5,000 with the feeding of the 4,000. And uh, some liberals that don't believe God wrote the Bible anyway, they, they have a lot of theories and opinions about the feeding of the 4,000, that it didn't really happen, or it was just a confused record, and, and uh, you know, they've got a flawed view in the Bible anyway, as basically oral tradition handed down through the generations, and then finally put in written form in a very confusing fashion. They've got uh, a flaw in their understanding to begin with. Uh, no, Christ fed 5,000 on one occasion, and he fed 4,000 on a subsequent occasion. And then he had a teaching ministry on yet another subsequent occasion where he asked the disciples if they learned anything in those two episodes. He said, when I fed the 5,000, how many baskets did you gather up? When I fed the 4,000, how many baskets did I gather up? So it wasn't a copyist or a scribe or somebody later on that was confused. And it certainly wasn't Jesus who was confused. He knew what he was doing and when he did it and why he did it. It's, uh, it's the liberals that don't want to admit that there is a God who, uh, who wrote to us in written form. So that's where we're headed, and we're very quickly approaching that. 
Uh, for now, though, I asked you a question at the end of the last class. Let's look at this miracle again. Uh, this Canaanite woman that won't take uh, no for an answer. Or, to be fair, she never got no for an answer. And until she gets no for an answer, she's going to keep asking. And that's uh, the principles that we gave out here. And Let me just run through the slideshow. Uh, the woman in, in this episode is a Canaanite, according to Matthew. She's also a Greek of the Syrophoenician race, according to Mark. Despite her Gentile background, she has a significant spiritual perspective. We laid out those three items. That uh, she correctly identifies the divine provision for mercy. She's not asking for grace. She's asking for mercy, and I find that to be significant. She correctly identifies Jesus as Lord, as Kurios, also as the son of David, Huios Dawid. And by combining Kurios with Dawid, she has an understanding of the Lord beyond the Greek understanding of Kurios, which could just be Sir or uh, a term of respect, Master or Lord or Sir. But she has the full depth of Kurios that includes Yahweh, that includes the understanding of Jehovah, Yahweh Elohim, the God of Israel. And by calling him Kurios and, and son of David, Huios Dawid, we recognize she has received some teaching. She has a background for the God of Israel. And then she correctly identifies her daughter's physical condition as being a consequence of demon possession. She doesn't say that her daughter has a medical problem. She has a spiritual problem. And that spiritual problem has medical, physiological effects. And I tell you, if, if people today could get that understanding down, doctors today are clueless, uh, unless you have a believer for a doctor that understands the angelic conflict. How do they, uh, how do you search for, uh, d demon, demonism or demonic possession or spiritual uh, oppression in, uh, in blood work? You know, you can see the symptoms. You can draw blood or take, uh, urine or other kind of, uh, uh, biological tests, chemical tests, but they're just simply examining the physiological effects of what is more often than not, or quite frequently it is, demonic activity that has those effects. As we've seen many times, the casting out of the demon produces the healing because it was the demon that was causing the, uh, the uh, physical affliction. So she has a, a tremendous background, and yet the Lord was reluctant to act. The Lord is reluctant to act. And, and this, I think, not only is it instructive for this particular episode, but I think it forms a backdrop by which we can understand a lot of the Lord's thinking in other episodes where he himself has to recognize what the will of the Father is before he ever proceeds. Jesus is never going to proceed in any work assignment without the leading of the Father. He will not teach a message that the Father does not deliver. He will not do a work that the Holy Spirit does not empower. He's not going to do anything apart from the Father or the Holy Spirit. Now, we notice the difference here in the comings and goings. And the disciples uh, don't have nearly the kind of patience he does. <laughs> and so... When you watch the comings and goings, the Canaanite woman came out, we're told in verse 22. You see that verb there, came out. And in verse 23, he did not answer her a word. Now, she does not have uh, additional contact with him until verse 25, when we notice again, she came and began to bow down before him, saying. So, she, when she came out, in verse 22, she was in proximity to him, but he does not answer. He evidently goes into the house or goes somewhere else more privately because then his disciples came. And in just by a careful track of the, of the verbs of motion there, coming out or coming, uh, coming and imploring, you, you, you don't have all the details spelled out, but clearly there's some kind of movement that occurs. That she came out and, uh, and uh, cried out and he doesn't answer her and then the disciples come and, and then she has to come again. So there's some distance involved. There's some movement that takes place. So he does not answer her a word. He doesn't tell her no. He just simply remains silent, does not give an answer. And that right there is, if, if I was going to teach this passage as an allegory, I hate allegory, but if I was going to teach this passage as an allegory, we can draw principles from here that apply to you and I and our application in terms of prayer. And I can, I can properly teach that, not only with this passage as a starting point, but bringing in all these other passages in prayer that, that apply as well. So uh, until we get a no answer, there's nothing wrong with continuing to ask. 
And in many respects, that's a part of our test is the test of our faithfulness, the test in our diligence, the test in our perseverance and our endurance. Are we going to keep asking? Are we going to keep the Lord used a parable where he talks about a woman that's hounding the, the unrighteous judge? And finally, she wears him out and says, all right. I'm going to rule on your behalf just because I'm tired of listening to you. <laughs> okay? And that's a carnal approach, an unrighteous judge that gets worn out by this incessant, incessant uh, hounding or nagging or whatnot. But the Lord used that as an illustration to say your prayers need to be that persistent. They need to be that obnoxious and, and constant and praying without ceasing. So... This woman, until she gets her no answer, is is uh, not out of line in continuing to ask her question and to uh, to phrase her request. Uh, the only time you're wrong to continue those prayers is when you've been given the answer and you don't like it. <laughs> when the answer comes back no, and uh, and then you keep asking and saying, uh, you know, and. If you're a parent, you understand how that works. If a child uh, gets the answer they don't like, and so they ask you again, hoping that you'll change your mind. At that point, it's disobedience. Or they go and ask the other parent to see if maybe they'll get a different answer compared to the answer they got from the first parent. All right? I won't tell you who's smiling this morning. Somebody's well aware of how this works. All right. In any event, you're, if the Lord gives you that answer, no, and you go back and ask again, that's Balaam. Uh, the Lord told Balaam, you can't curse whom I have blessed. And then Balak doubled his offer, and Balaam said, well, let me go double check. Let me go ask again. See, all right. So the disciples now, when they say, uh, um, send her away because she keeps shouting at us, they're not saying that in a dismissive sense. They expect that he's going to do the miracle. Send her away, they're expecting that, give her what she wants, do the miracle, and let her go. For she keeps shouting at us, and that's extraordinary. She had already implored from the Lord, the Lord didn't answer her, the Lord evidently went into a room or a house or some other location, so she starts turning her attention to the disciples, wanting the disciples to do something about her daughter. And then, of course, we're left asking, well, why didn't they do something about her daughter? They were given that kind of authority to cast out demons and to heal and to even raise the dead and so forth. Did they feel like because uh, their two-by-two two ministry had drawn to a close and they were back with the Lord and back under his teaching that they didn't, they, they didn't feel free to exercise the authority that he'd given them? I find that very remarkable because when you're given delegated authority... Uh, why would you then be reluctant to make use of what he's freely provided you? But there's more to that than the text allows us to understand, and, and any more, I think, exploration on that part, on my part here, would be, would be speculation. So uh, now she comes in, or his answer in verse 24 demonstrates his reluctance. Why is he reluctant to answer? He, he, he answered, not her, but them, and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And this starts to explain why he has this reluctance. He's silent towards the woman, but he explains to the disciples he's not prepared to perform a miracle in this location. His purpose is to minister to the lost sheep of Israel. Remember, miracles are supposed to be a sign. They're supposed to be a testimony. They're supposed to alert the audience that their God is giving them a message. And uh, now he's done miracles for Gentiles in the past. We, we detailed that last week. Uh, the centurion, whose servant was uh, in need of being healed, uh, he's, he's done miracles for Gentiles in the past. But here, what's the difference? Yeah, I'll get to that there in a moment. That's right. Uh, the difference between healing the Gentile uh, in terms of the Capernaum, uh, uh, the centurion servant in Capernaum was that was an opportunity where there was teaching taking place already and that there were Jewish witnesses to the teaching and there were Jewish witnesses to the to the miracle here he is in the boundary region between Jewish territory and Gentile territory and there is no scheduled teaching he is in a retreat not scheduled to teach and where the miracle is going to take place back in Tyre or whatever Phoenician city that, that girl is located in there's not a Jewish audience there that's going to observe the miracle see and so this event is not consistent with his normal ministry and how he operates under the father's leadership and the 
empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So he is not yet comfortable in doing a miracle. See, remember, whatever is not a faith is sin. If you're not convinced that it's the will of God to do something, why are you doing it? If you're doubting about it, is this right? Is this not right? Okay. No, we're supposed to have our own convictions before the Lord. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in that which he approves. You examine the question. You pray over it. You apply the scripture. You come to a decision. And then you give it to the Lord. And say, Lord, this is my decision. This is my conviction. This is my understanding. And I'm proceeding forward from this day forward on that understanding until you make it clear otherwise. If, uh, if, if I need a different attitude, then adjust it. Give me the different attitude. Open my eyes to where it needs to be. But as of now... And that way you leave it with the Father. You say, Father, this is my understanding. And I'm going to proceed forward in faith on that understanding. And if I'm wrong, then you know it's my ignorance, not my rebellion. And, and leave it with the Father. Say, Father, you can leave me in my ignorance or you can adjust my thinking. But I'm going forward on this basis. And then you can be confident and you can relax. So here's the Lord uh, pursuing a similar line of thought. Now, she's not yet received her no answer, so she keeps approaching him. And she comes and begins to bow down, saying, Lord, help me. Now he answers her. And when he answers her, he doesn't say no. He moves from silence to a parable. He goes to a parable. Now, giving her a parable is very important because the parable is designed to show or to, to determine, does she have ears to hear or not? See, you can do the same thing. I can do the same thing. We all do it. If you're talking to somebody on the street, you don't have any clue where they're coming from. Are there not ways where you can ask them a question or just make a comment or somehow verbally figure out very quickly whether they're saved or not? Or whether they have a background in under teaching? Ask them if, uh, if, they've, uh, if they're uh, regenerate sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, or just find whatever form or question and, and find based on their answer. You know, you talk to people and, and based on how they answer, you find out very quickly whether they've been under teaching or not been under teaching. Say, they use a term like uh, post-salvation epistemological rehabilitation. You go, aha, I've, I've perceived that you've been under teaching and I know whose teaching you've been under. <laughs> right? He uses a parable. And you recognize the, the purpose for a parable back in chapter 13. The disciples said, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. It's a means of teaching by which those with ears to hear can hear. And they will understand the doctrinal impact of the message of a parable. Those without ears to hear will still understand the English words the Greek words or Hebrew words or Aramaic words. They'll understand the spoken words, but they're, they don't have a living human spirit to digest the spiritual truth contained in those words. And so, to you it has been granted, but to them it has not been granted. So, he speaks in a parable, and guess what? She's got ears to hear. She responds to the parable and continues the parable herself. The woman indeed sees and understands and embraces her estate as a dog. So he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. So she embraces the parable and even adds to the parable. You ever done that? We used to play a goofy game. I haven't done it for a while now with the kids. We used to play a game where you would just make up a sentence, start to tell a story. Make up a sentence. You know, once upon a time, there was a, uh, there was a, a dog named Fido. And then you hand it off to your first child. And they've got to say a sentence, continuing the story about Fido. And then the next child has to come up with a sentence, continuing the story. And by the time you get to the second or third child, this story has gone directions you never anticipated. And then it comes back to you and... and Add another sentence to it. It's kind of like an improv exercise kind of thing. Well, this woman adds to the parable. She contributes herself. She embraces the truth. She knows she's a Gentile dog. And she's able to stay in the, in the uh, realm of this parable and add an, an element of truth. Is this not true? Don't, 
don't the little house dogs, don't they eat the crumbs? Don't you feed the scraps under the table? Kid's not going to eat it anyway. You've already fed the kid. That's fine. Feed the kid. But then give the scraps to the dog. That's normal. Very humble of her and very, uh, very much uh, a mature statement here. And I look forward to meeting this woman someday. Now, because of this, the woman's faith and understanding of the parable tells the Lord that it shall be done according to her will. Fascinating phrase. Matthew 15, 28. Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. The verb is thelema, or the verb thelo, the noun thelema. It centers on the will of man. We, we focus on the will of God a lot. This is a statement on the will of man. And prayers can be answered according to the will of man so far as our will is lined up with his will, right? If you ask anything according to his will. And so the only time you have to say, not my will, but thine be done, is when your will is different. <laughs> All right? If your will is lined up with his will, then it is your will and his will. Right? That makes sense? So he says, it shall be done for you as you wish. Okay? A little princess bride quotation there. As you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. See, the Lord recognized the faith. The Lord recognized that the provision was going to be made. So now my question for you is, we ended the class last week, did the Lord, is this a miracle? Did the Lord do a miracle here? Did the Lord exercise a work of power and heal that woman's daughter by casting out the demons? Or did the Father do it as a response to prayer? Did you think about that in the course of the last week? What conclusion did you come to? Linty, you came to... Uh huh. Yeah, he didn't say that he was going to do it. He said, I will heal your daughter or go in peace. Your daughter is, is well. He told the centurion, uh, your faith is great. Uh, your, your son as well. Your, your servant as well. And uh, but is this an answer to prayer? Did the father do this? Say anybody else come to a conclusion on that, Gary? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his miracles were immediate, but also answers to prayer are immediate. And uh, from that very moment, or at once, yeah, at once. And, uh, and it's just simply a passive verb. Her daughter was healed. Yeah, it's just a passive verb. The daughter was healed. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like the Lord said, the, God, the Lord God said, let there be light, and there was light. You know, when it's the will of the Father for it to occur, it occurs. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I have a conclusion this morning either. I don't, I, I, the way I think about it, Jesus didn't do this miracle. Jesus was the intercessor. He heard her prayer, and by asking him, him, what was she doing? She was praying. What do you and I do when we approach the Father? We pray to the Father in the name of the Son, right? We don't have the advantage of physically walking our bodies face to face with the body of the humanity of Jesus Christ because he's seated in glory. We, we approach the Father in prayer. But she was face to face with the Father's Son, letting her request be made known. Say, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, let your request be made known. And that's what she was doing. And, uh, through the Son, to the Father, her, uh, her desire was granted. So, I'm leaning towards that, that this was not a miracle. It, it shows up in all the lists of the miracles of Jesus. But uh, if I ever publish my own list of the miracles of Jesus, uh, I think I'm going to take this one off and say this was a work of the Father as an answer to prayer in any event. All right, well, good. Good, good, good. Let's start the next slideshow then, The Afflicted Healed, episode 42 in the Galilean ministry. We stay in Matthew 15. We stay in Mark 7. We just move on to the next few verses. In Matthew 15, is verses 29 through 31. In Mark 7, is verses 31 through 37. Staying in Matthew 15, I'll read the text. 
After her daughter was healed at once, verse 29, departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. By the way, the standard pronunciation for moot or mute is something that goes back to my childhood. A Sunday school teacher of mine named Fred Mailer, who's with the Lord now. I love him dearly. Look forward to seeing him someday. He was very picky about the pronunciation of mute, and he hated the the y y sound in mute, and he always insisted on moot. Even when we showed him dictionaries that demonstrated that both pronunciations were acceptable, he always insisted on using moot as his pronunciation. So it's kind of scarred me for life, and I I do the same thing, just out of memory for Fred and my love for uh, for that man. All right. That's the Matthew account. Mark gets a little bit more detailed in terms of the geography and the audience. So we'll spend most of our time in Mark, Mark 7. All the vivid details. Mark was so servant-minded, and he would pick up on things that a servant would spot that others would not necessarily recognize. Matthew, of course, was an eyewitness. He was involved in all these events. Mark was not, but uh, Matthew... Uh, didn't have the servant eye to pick up on some of these details here. For instance, like in verse 24, where Christ was trying to stay incognito. He was trying to escape notice. We're told that he went to the region of Tyre, the outskirts of Tyre. And when he entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. Jesus couldn't do everything he wanted to do. He wanted a break. He wanted a little time away. And the father said, no, you got more work to do. <laughs> See, you'll get some R&R. You'll get some rest and relaxation, but you'll get it when I tell you you get it. And you get enough when, uh, when I provide it. All right, so the woman comes to him and all that event. And then down to verse, uh, let's see, look at the end of this here. He said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. All right, verse 31. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through. We get more geographical information in Mark. Went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Now, did I? Oh, I did that. I meant to leave Google Earth up and running, and I closed it back down again. Silly me. Let me put this back up again. Because this actually, it'd be like going to from here to uh, Cedar Park uh, by way of, uh, you know, Bryan College Station or something. You know, we're just going to, we're headed this direction, but we're going to make a big loop around like that. And that's what the Lord did uh, by proceeding to Sidon. Sidon was north of Tyre. And coming around through the regions of Syria, he actually is getting back to the Sea of Galilee, but he's getting there from the east rather than from the west. See, it'd be like, uh, you know, coming from the education building next door. I would expect anybody coming from the education building next door is going to come from the west, is going to come east here to the church. And it would be really weird for somebody to leave that building out the front door and walk west down to Yates and come back around on Morrow and come back around here to the east and enter from the east side of the church. That would be unusual. <laughs> you would be definitely somebody who's trying to escape notice, right? By going the long way around a very long block and then sneaking in the, uh, the window from this closet over here. and No one would notice you coming from that, from that direction. That's kind of the path that the, uh, that the Lord is taking. And we'll, uh, again, bring this back up. I just like it. It's kind of cool. So, uh, so we go to Israel. I should have been a geography major. And we'll turn off all the modern locations. Especially the borders where they try to say some of that belongs to the Arabs. All right. And they didn't have airports back in the day either. We'll turn off the airplanes. How's that sound? There are, um, and we should post some of these on the website. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, people have designed overlays for biblical sites. A lot of them. 
<laughs> and you really have to zoom in to, uh, some of them have done like Paul's missionary journeys. And uh, there's a lot of really interesting overlays that are there. I like that one better. So anyway, you can see Tyre on the coast and you can see Sidon, which is north of there. If uh, is that very visible from the back of the room? Somewhat. Anyway, the Galilean region here to the west of the sea. And, and the Lord spent most of his time on the sea, sailing, walking, uh, left side, east side, back and forth, circling around and so forth. Uh, the region to the west here is the Galilean region where he was born, uh, where he was raised rather, and where he grew up. And so this, uh, this retreat out towards Tyre in this uh, kind of middle ground region out here was really a borderland region. It still is to this very day a region where Israel and, the, and Hezbollah are at it with each other. Uh, it was kind of a no man's land, and the Romans deliberately kept it that way. Uh, the, the coastal region, Tyre and Sidon, and those cities, they fell under the, the governor in Syria, and uh, they were out of Herod's realm. They were out of the Jewish area as far as the Romans were concerned. And so there was kind of an in-between territory there where the events of this uh, uh, miracle or this answer to prayer took place. So he's going to go from Tyre, and he's going to go back to the Sea of Galilee, but he does so by way of Sidon, and around the long way, and he approaches it here from the east, and he actually approaches the region of Decapolis. And Decapolis was on the southeast side of uh, of the lake, whereas Capernaum was on the northwest side of the lake. Does that make sense? All right, so he's making a big loop around. Like I say, it'd be like going, uh, going to my house by way of uh, Tyler, or Taylor. I get Taylor and Tyler mixed up. Taylor. Tyler. No, Taylor. Okay. I don't know why I get that mixed up. I've never in my life been to Tyler, so you'd think it'd be easy for me to remember. All right, so that's the geography on it. Again, low profile, escaping notice, some time away with his disciples. They need to be trained. And uh, goodness knows uh, that it cuts into your time if you're trying to train uh, these 12 guys, and, and uh, most of whom are pretty well knuckleheads. And it takes extra work, remedial classes for... Peter and some of these guys to figure stuff out. All right, now, so he approaches from the east. He went out from the region of Tyre, came through the Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis, they brought, which was, by the way, also outside of Herod's domain. Uh, at one point, uh, Augustus gave two of the cities to Herod and uh, another city to Herod's wife. But by and large, Decapolis was uh, autonomous. They were their own very Greek uh, city, uh, territory. So they brought him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue with, his sal- with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the moot to speak. All right, so that's we've got the Matthew record, we've got the Mark record, and there's not a lot of overlap between them. They're, they're largely independent sources. Matthew was more wrapped up over the sheer numbers of people, the crowds and crowds, and the variety of things that the Lord did. Mark focused on one guy, one guy in particular that got Mark's attention was this speech impediment and the sign language at work here where the Lord uh, performed this, uh, this work. All right. Four things we want to glean out of this episode. The Lord continues his retreat. The Lord's retreat in the region of Tyre moved on through Sidon and Decapolis. Decapolis was the region, by the way, where the evangelist formerly known as Legion ministered. You remember that episode? Mark chapter 5 and verse 20. In fact, we'll turn there in a moment. The Lord's retreat in the region of Tyre moved on through Sidon and Decapolis. Mark 7:31. Decapolis was the region where the evangelist, formerly known as Legion, ministered. And what's interesting, we're finding something very similar to here to what happened earlier. 
when the Lord came back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and everybody got all excited in that region. And they started bringing people to be healed. They started laying them out in rows on the, on the beach and waiting for the Lord to pass by. That was a Jewish excitement for the Lord coming to their hometown. Remember that? Now, he's back on the east side again. He's back in Gentile territory, actually within the region of Decapolis. And we're seeing the very same thing, only now it's Gentiles that are excited about the Messiah coming to their town. And they're doing the same thing. They're bringing droves of these people out that are sick, that are in need of healing, that are in need of uh, demon uh, casting out and things like that. The reference there in Mark 5 I find to be significant because this guy has been busy. We find in the, in the, time, the intervening time in these two chapters between Mark 5 and Mark 7, that evangelist, formerly known as Legion, has been busy. And there is a large excitement for the Lord coming to their town. At the end of Mark 5, or in verse 20, first of all, he wants to join his, uh, his disciples. And uh, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And so this man becomes an evangelist, a bearer of good news, back to his own town. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. And so now we find the motivation in chapter 7, when he's within the region of Decapolis, in verse 31, and here comes the crowd, here comes they. Who's they? They brought to him, you notice the, the crowds here, they. Well, word is spread. Word is spread. That evangelist, formerly known as Legion, has been busy telling all kinds of people about it, saying, you know, we've got to be ready. If he comes back to this region, we've got to be ready. And I think it's pretty clear that uh, that's what was going on there. Matthew highlights the large crowds that gathered for healing. That was Matthew's emphasis. He highlights the large crowds that had gathered for healing. We read through that text already in Matthew 15:30. We really will be doing a lot of back and forth here because the two episodes don't overlap in their narration. Large crowds came to him, bringing with them lame, crippled, blind, moot, and many others. They laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. The crowds marveled. Not only that it was done, but how well that it was done. An amazing statement there. Anyway, they marveled. They saw the moot speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified. Notice, they glorified the God of Israel. It's a big clue that we're dealing with. A, if you didn't know the geography and if you didn't know the politics, if you didn't understand that Decapolis was a Gentile region, uh, that little clue right there should, should fill you in. They glorified the God of Israel. It's not their God, at least not on a covenant national basis. They place their faith in Christ, and of course they're believers, they're saved, they're born again Gentiles, but, and he, you can say he's their God in the sense that he's their Savior, but he's not their God in the sense that Politically, they're Gentiles, and he's the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Does that make sense? He's not their God on a political, national basis. They can still be saved. All right. As long as I'm clear on that. Um, and this is itself prophecy. This episode shows a great parallel with Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. How many times are we going to be in Isaiah this week? We went to Isaiah for our first Corinthians series. We're going to Isaiah for uh, Psalm 119. We're going to Isaiah for... Uh, maybe it's because I got excited teaching Isaiah to the teenagers. But Isaiah 35, so uh, turn back to the Old Testament here. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is true. And yet there would be exposure to the Gentiles as well that was spoken of by the prophets and then testified about later on. Isaiah 35. And it's interesting. We find a, a passage that blends what you and I would consider to be First Advent and Second Advent information. All put together into one message of the coming Christ. Uh, the wilderness and the desert will be glad. The Arabah will rejoice and blossom. This is all good news for uh, days to come yet. Uh, although there are... Some Jews today in Israel that try to quote this verse and say it's fulfilled. You know, that since the establishment of the nation of Israel, the desert has bloomed. 
They've come in with uh, some stewardship of the land and some irrigation. And it's, there's no question that the effects in the land of Israel, since the uh, nation of Israel was reestablished, the effects in their land is unbelievable. Just, you know, you can get on Google Earth again and look at the Jewish territories and see how green. Then look at the Arab territories in the West Bank and Gaza and see how blighted those territories are. And it's, uh, it's quite striking. Anyway, they, they will claim this as being fulfilled, but again, Israel is in the land in unbelief. They are not ready to embrace their Christ. They're ready to sign a treaty with Antichrist, and, and uh, we see how that uh, is proceeding. All right, it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. And that's the region of Tyre and Sidon, where the Lord just was ministering. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Sharon was the, the plain just south of Carmel. Uh, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. See, there were regions where the Christ had to be manifest. Even though they were regions that were never conquered in Joshua's day, were never occupied by the Jews very, uh, with, uh, very extensively, and even to the, time, to the time of the first advent, they were still in Gentile hands. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God the God of Israel. But it's the Gentiles who are going to see that. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come. In the Gimel file, we'll be dealing with recompense next Sunday morning. The recompense of God will come and He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground uh, springs of water and the haunt of jackals its resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go upon it. These uh, will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return, and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. All right, now clearly this is millennial. This is second advent. This is looking forward to a day of great transformation and the uh, physical transformation in the land, um, things that were not fulfilled in first advent, and yet elements were there. The healing was there. The miracles were there. They had every evidence that the Messiah was among them. And had, we think of the what-ifs, had they accepted their king and not rejected their king, could second advent have then commenced immediately? In the, in the what-ifs, okay? And we know it didn't. We know that he was crucified. We know that there was a, a break between the two advents and now the outworking of the church age. And we know, we know what is, but sometimes we want to consider what might have been under other circumstances. For example, there were other circumstances where Sodom and Gomorrah could have remained. Uh, there, was, there was an alternative uh, scenario, an alternative timeline in which they would have repented. If the miracles had been done in them that were done in Tyre and Sidon, for example. So that, that's what boggles my mind about the plan of God. Not only does he know all of the realities of what is, but he knows every what if of what might have been, what could have been. See, what would have been under different situations and circumstances. And that, uh, that just boggles the, the human mind to try to, to try to comprehend. All right. Anyway, the passages like this are passages of great encouragement. Uh, the Lord used uh, this concept when he was encouraging John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer was in prison and saying, uh, you know, are you the expected one or should we look for another? And the Lord said, go and report to John what you see. You know, the eyes of the blind are open, the deaf hear, the, the lame walk. He starts quoting these passages from Isaiah and other prophets saying, the scriptures are being fulfilled. So you can be encouraged by that. These Gentile crowds glorified the God of Israel. We already highlighted that in Matthew 15:31, and I think it ties in well with the statement in Isaiah 35:2, where they will see the glory of Jehovah, the majesty of our Elohim, the majesty of our God. So these Gentile crowds glorified the God of Israel. 
Yes, he was the Christ to the Jews. He was the Messiah to Israel. But in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He was born under the law and he was born the seed of David, but his work was a blessing to all humanity. And the Abrahamic covenant anticipated that. Another verse that's on my mind, it's not in my notes, I want to give it to you here. It comes from 2 Timothy. Um, let me pull it up. All right, it comes in 1 Timothy, pardon me. 1 Timothy 3, 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. It's mystery doctrine, musterion doctrine, that applies to believers in the dispensation of the church. He who was revealed in the flesh, this is a psalm, by the way, composed by the Apostle Paul. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, realizing, of course, just as you and I are on display in the angelic conflict, Jesus Christ was the ultimate one on display in the angelic conflict, proclaimed among the nations. Or the Gentiles. Same word. Proclaimed among the Gentiles. Believed on in the cosmos. Taken up in glory. This is the mystery of godliness. And the whole impact of this psalm is to recognize that although he was sent primarily to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The ministry of Jesus Christ included the angelic realm. The, the Gentile realm. All of humanity. And that's part of what we want to understand in our own in our own uh, earthly walk, because you and I, just like Christ was revealed in the flesh, you and I walk in our humanity, vindicated in the Spirit. Anything we do, if it's going to have value, has to be under the filling and control of God the Holy Spirit. Seen by the angels. Every ministry we have is observed by the angels. We are a manifestation of the manifold wisdom of God is now displayed through us to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Proclaimed among the nations, let your light shine before men in such a way that they might glorify your Father who is in heaven. Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the mystery of God. It's a great confession. It's a great testimony of our faith. And it centers on everything in the ministry of Jesus Christ, including the Gentile response that he enjoys here in uh, Matthew 15 and in Mark 7. All right, the third observation we get out of this. Mark highlights one particular death and uh, speech-impaired man. I'm, I meant to uh, change both of those to the politically correct terms. The hearing-impaired and speech-impaired man. I find that I'm politically correct-impaired. <laughs> I just sometimes I can't uh, I can't remember to utilize the official term. You know, because we don't want people to be offended. We want people to feel bad. We don't want their feelings to be hurt by a term that is could be considered uh, derogatory or non-complimentary. What a culture. Right now, the, did you read the the new prime minister in England has told his staff... And advised Parliament that they can refer to terrorists. They can use the word terrorist. They have called these latest attacks actual terrorism attacks. And he's approved the use of the terms terror and terrorist. But he has instructed them not to, in a statement that includes the word terrorist, not to use the word Muslim or Islamic. Those words are off the table. You can use the word terrorism, but don't use the term Muslim or Islamic because we don't want to alienate the Islamic community. Right. I just, I'm, I'm not in touch. Those stories, anyway, I pray about it and confess and get back in fellowship. And it's just wild, isn't it? Anyway. Stay away from the news stories. The good news stories this week, though, there have been two about retired Marines. And I'll share those with you after class. Great stories. All right. Now, we've got a deaf guy here. And we don't know his name. And, you know, the miracles, some people get really worked up over what's the deal with the fingers and the ears. Right? And spitting. 
and touching a tongue. And there was another episode where he spits and he makes mud out of the dirt and he applies clay to the eyes. And then there's other <clears throat> incidents where he heals the blind without touching, with just saying the word. Why does the Lord have so much variety in the methods and the things that he does? All right. We don't know. Can we be blunt about that? We don't know. Scripture describes what he does, but does not tell us why he does what he does when the situations are different. And I think rather than get worked up about it, I think we should at least recognize that different situations call for different methods. Can we, can we leave it at that? And maybe what, what's effective in one situation may not be effective in another situation. And the Lord obviously had reasons for doing what he did when he did it. I believe everything was instructive. That's right. We, uh, we saw it in the book of Ezekiel. Why did Ezekiel lay on his left side for 40 days and then roll over to his right side for 390 days? Right? Why did he cut off his hair and divide it into thirds and, and burn it in, in three different parts? There was a lot of um, pantomiming. There was a lot of acting. There was a lot of very visible display. And remember, Jesus was a prophet. He was an Old Testament prophet along the lines of Ezekiel and Daniel and these guys. Um, this is instructive. And the actual content uh, is lost to us. We weren't there, and it doesn't apply to us anyway, but the deaf guy sure got it. I think it was sign language. I think it was a means of communication that the, that man could comprehend. And if he didn't have the faith in response to the nonverbal message, just like the, the Syrophoenician woman, I don't believe this miracle would have been done had it not been for the teaching that took place. Now, there's some vocabulary on this. Let's just wrap it up here real quickly. Kofan, Kaya, Magalalon. It's, it's bizarre terms. In fact, this is uh, the only place in the New Testament that Magilalas occurs. Difficult of speech. It is used in Isaiah 35, 6. passage we just looked at. Um, uh, a, a, a magis could be like a block, uh, a, a snare, an impediment of some sort. It's a, it's a thickness of the tongue. Uh, and it wasn't that he couldn't speak, it was just difficult. Uh, you know, we think about different guy. Uh, the fellow comes here occasionally, he's got a cleft palate, he's had that since birth. Really, really hard to understand him sometimes until you get used to the way he speaks and you kind of develop an ear for, for, for hearing him. Um, you know, and, and the first time you ever see the guy, you wonder, was this guy a demoniac? Is there a demon block in his mouth? What's going on? See, no, it's just... The way he was born. That's the, the defect of his, of his uh, palate. Anyway, this is the only place that it's used. Kofos is awkward because it's translated both mute or deaf, depending on the context. It's the same word. And uh, we understand a lot of uh, individuals, if you have no hearing, then they never learn how to speak, or they don't speak, or can't speak, and so forth. And to the Greeks, it was all the same concept, and it was a concept of silence, uh, both in terms of what you could receive and what you could transmit. It was just a, a world of silence and they called such a person Kofos. And so depending on your passage, uh, sometimes it's rendered mute, sometimes it's, it's rendered deaf. That's not really the surprising aspect of the passage. Jesus isolated the man and provided one-on-one -on -one instruction. I think it was one-on-one -on -one sign language instruction. Clearly, he took him apart. We're told that. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. This was a one-on-one -on -one ministry. This is the one-on-one -on -one attention that an individual was in need of. And then if you want to read uh, 45 thoroughly boring articles, read the uh, journal articles that contemplate why the deep sigh, right? In verse 34, looking up to heaven with a deep sigh. Because there's no end to the speculation. Why did he sigh? You know, a pastor gets up there and he's teaching class and he gets ready to close in prayer and then just all of a sudden he goes, all right, well, it's 11 o'clock, we better pray. What's up with a sigh? Was he discouraged? Was he tired? Was he approving? Was he disapproving? Was he fed up? Was he, what's up with a sigh? Again, the text doesn't tell us. If it, if it was critical for us to know, we wouldn't know. I do find it to be interesting. My conclusion, by the way, this was sign language instruction. The fact that 
the signs were supposed to be a testimony to give the credentials for the accuracy of the message. If there's no message, why do a miracle? And uh, the communication here. Also, the, the, the real awkward thing is, who do the pronouns belong to? Because it's fuzzy in English and it's even worse in Greek. Again, look at verse 33. Put his fingers into his ears. All right, whose fingers? Are those Jesus' fingers or are those the deaf guy's fingers? And into whose ears? Were those Jesus' ears or were those the deaf guy's ears? I mean, you can read it either way. The pronouns are entirely ambiguous. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into the other guy's ears. Put the other guy's fingers into his own ears. Did he talk to the, take the guy's arms and stick his fingers in his ears? Or did he take his own arms and put his own fingers in his ears? We don't know. We don't know. And then spitting. Where did he spit? And uh, did he spit onto his fingers? Touching his tongue. That's an idiom. Touching the tongue. Well, what did he touch the tongue to? With his fingers again? Anyway, this is one of the most awkward passages I've ever looked at. Somebody even, I think it was Fruchtenbaum, or somebody made a joke about the nature of schisms in churches, the nature of denominations in churches. He's kind of surprised we don't have a, a, a denomination of, of, of spitters and, and ear finger, you know, people that just... Anyway, it would be an imitation of Christ, wouldn't it? If you, if you came into church on a Sunday morning and stuck your fingers in your ear and spit. <laughs> and we can start a whole denomination. And there's not anybody on the planet that can't tell us that we're not imitating our, our Savior, right? Anyway, no, this, that denomination has not yet appeared in the course of church history, but it, other ones have. The command for healing was uttered in the Aramaic language, Ephathah. Ephathah. And Mark translates the Aramaic for his largely Gentile audience. Ephathah. It's not even a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word transliterated into Greek characters. Translated by the aorist passive imperative of Dianuigo, be opened. He speaks in Aramaic. Again, he's dealing with a Gentile here. In all likelihood, Aramaic being the spoken language of the Decapolis. Greek being the trade language, Aramaic being the spoken language, Latin being the legal language. This one is actually more fun to read about. There's an amazing article called Ephatha and Maranatha. And it takes the two, Arama uh, the two Aramaic terms, this one, Ephatha, and then Maranatha, of course, come Lord Jesus. We're excited about that one. And uh, tremendous Aramaic article on the influence of Aramaic in the Greek New Testament. Anyway, good word study if you're into the languages. Finally, even more Decapolis evangelists are sparked. Even more fruit is born. That one guy, Legion, look what he does. He starts spreading the word. The crowds start gathering. And now you've got formerly known as Legion and formerly uh, known as uh, difficulty speaking. And those two evangelists are going to lead these crowds into a revival here, a Gentile revival among the uh, inhabitants of Decapolis. He gave them orders. Never works, but he does it all the time. He gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. That's a pattern. We see the Jews doing it. We see Gentiles doing it. And they were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the moot to speak. All right, that's the Afflicted Healed, episode 42. Next week, we'll come back and look at the feeding of the 4,000. Again, the setting remains a Gentile setting. And so that'll be a neat contrast to the feeding of the 5,000. Any questions? The same reason he ordered them the previous time and the previous time and the previous time. Um, it is interesting the uh, not to tell anyone, not to, not to, we would render it, 
don't market the miracle. Don't, don't get caught up in the miracle. Don't go telling people about the wonder working. Tell them about the message. Say, that's the difference in any event. All right. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for uh, the traveling mercies you've extended to those that are uh, traveling this week. And for all your continued faithfulness in the days and weeks ahead, we rejoice that we can live one day at a time, moment by moment, held, uh, held firmly in your arms. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.